the headlines tonight. Rolling Thunder, North Vietnam gets a buzz cut. Kherson, Russia's newest vacation spot. And Wilt Chamberlain, the 100-point man. Plus, coming up, we ask, is it true that cats can predict the weather? Those are the headlines, and that's the way it isn't. News bang, weaving the tapestry of truth thread by thread. In 1965, in a shocking twist of events, South Vietnam, once thought to be on its last legs in the face of North Vietnam's relentless advances, has reportedly legged it towards the jungle. The pivotal moment occurred when General Bonehead from Saigon realized he'd been signing napkins instead of strategic maps for the past 10 years. Chaos ensued as Allied forces scrambled to evacuate, often resorting to stuffing entire orphanages into their pockets. Eyewitnesses describe harrowing scenes at Tan Son Not Air Base as GIs desperately clambered onto departing helicopters, leaving behind half-eaten banana splits and a generation scarred by bad war movies. One sobbing grunt told us, I never even got to bed my one true love. Well, not in that position anyway. The American public reacted with horror and bewilderment. Some had even bought beat-back communism t-shirts. President Ford slammed his fist on the Oval Office table so hard his dentures flew out as he vowed revenge on whoever took his metaphorical virginity. It is believed that somewhere in Moscow, Brezhnev was seen laughing manically while stroking a White House seal. 2022. On this day, we remember the start of the second Ukrainian invasion by those fun-loving Russians. The year was 2022 when a tussle over the gas bill escalated into full-blown warfare. Russian forces captured Kherson a picturesque port city with views of both the Black Sea and Chernobyl, much to the surprise of local residents. I just put out my knickers to dry, said one bemused resident, Anna Borinsky, when these tanks come trundling down my street. Residents described how they tried to reason with their uninvited guests, but soon realised they spoke as much English as a plate of sturgeon. In days that followed, an uneasy peace descended on the region punctuated only by sporadic shelling and power cuts. The world looked on aghast as Russia gobbled up more territory than at a hot dog eating contest. Kherson remained under occupation until November when it was recaptured by Ukraine during Operation Poking Bear. The conflict left scars deep enough to fill the Black Sea ten times over, if you had a big enough teaspoon. Today we remember those who lost their lives or fell off boats trying to flee this Slavic slapstick. 1962. On this day in 1962, Wilt Chamberlain, a man so tall he could dunk without standing on his wallet, made history when he scored 100 points in a single game for the Philadelphia Warriors against the New York Knickerbockers. The match, which lasted just seven and a half minutes due to everyone else's exhaustion, saw Chamberlain sink shots from as far away as Delaware. A self-proclaimed ladies' man, Wilt was also an accomplished volleyball player, much to the dismay of net manufacturers everywhere. The Golden State Warriors today tweeted their congratulations, but were quick to point out they weren't even born then. They later deleted the tweet and blamed it on Kevin, who had found their phone again. Meanwhile, eyewitnesses described scenes of mayhem as Chamberlain couldn't decide between basketball or volleyball, so decided to play both at once. Said one astonished fan, he was like a Harlem globetrotter on stilts with two left feet. 
news bang, separating the wheat from the chaff with a rusty chainsaw. Shakanaka Giles with the weather, summarizing the UK's meteorological roller coaster. Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a drizzle that's as persistent as a door-to-door -door salesman. A bit like a soggy scone, it'll be a day to keep your brollies at the ready. Moving on to the Midlands, where the sun will be playing hide-and-seek with the clouds, it's as if Mother Nature's having a jolly good laugh at our expense. Up north, it's going to be a bit blustery, like a baker's wife after a few too many sherries. Keep those hats firmly on your heads, folks. And finally, in Scotland, it's going to be a right chilly one. The sort of cold that'll make your nipples stand to attention like a pair of over-eager guardsmen. In summary then, a soggy scone, a jolly good laugh, a tipsy baker's wife and a pair of over-eager guardsmen. And that's all the weather. In 1965. The year is 1965, and the world is in the throes of the Vietnam War, a catastrophic conflict between North and South Vietnam, backed by global powers, namely the United States and the Soviet Union. Operation Rolling Thunder, a devastating bombing campaign, marks a turning point in the war. South Vietnam, recognized by the United States and other nations, ceases to exist in 1975, as North Vietnam emerges victorious unifying with the South to form the Socialist Republic of Vietnam in 1976. Meanwhile, the Cold War, a tense standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union, rages from 1947 to 1991. And now, for a closer look at the Vietnam War, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable. This is the war that refuses to be anything other than war. The air crackles with the snap, crackle and pop of a thousand thunderstorms as Operation Rolling Thunder roars into life. The horizon is a merciless brush fire bristling with fiery steel and the acrid scent of burning rubber. As I stand here in the eye of this mechanical tempest, I can feel the very ground shudder beneath my feet, each tremor a silent testament to the indomitable spirit of mankind. The skies above are choked with wings of fury, their engines shrieking a symphony of destruction. And yet, amidst the chaos there is an eerie grace, for this is the ballet of the war machine, each dance a deadly waltz between the living and the damned. To my left a grizzled pilot clambers into the cockpit of his metal beast, a cigar clenched between his teeth like the last lifeline to sanity. To my right, a young soldier, barely more than a boy, clutches his rifle like a lover's hand, his eyes wide with a mix of fear and determination. And as I report the sound of bullets zinging past my ears, it's like a swarm of bees, only more deadly. As the first salvo of bombs rain down upon the enemy, the earth erupts in a cacophony of sound and fury. 
fire and smoke billow skyward, creating an infernal curtain that separates the known from the unknown. And through it all, the relentless hum of the rolling thunder continues, a reminder that this war knows no bounds, no respite. The wounded are being carried past me now, the dying, the dead. And the smell, the smell of war, the smell of death, the smell of burning flesh. This is Operation Rolling Thunder, the most intense air-ground battle of the Cold War, and it is here, amidst the thunderous roar and the deafening silence, that the destiny of nations will be forged. Brian Bastable news bang somewhere in the heart of the storm. 1865. In a shocking incident from 1865, Carl Silvius Volkner, a Protestant missionary, met a grisly end at the hands of Hauhau militants in Opatiki, Bay of Plenty. Volkner's alleged role as an agent for Governor George Grey sparked his execution, marking a dark chapter in the New Zealand wars. The Volkner incident, a miscarriage of justice, led to the confiscation of Maori land and fueled the Pai Mariri movement, a unique blend of biblical and Maori elements aimed at resisting British domination. And to delve deeper into this historical conundrum, we turn to our resident historian, Ken Shit. Ahoy there, miscreants! Gather round and prepare to witness a tale of blood betrayal and blatant injustice, all set in the year 1865. The New Zealand Wars were a time of turmoil and upheaval as the colonial government waged war against the Maori people. It was a brutal conflict, marked by violence, deception and outright genocide. In the heart of Opatiki, a small town nestled in the Bay of Plenty, a tragedy unfolded that would have far-reaching consequences. Carl Silvius Volkner, a Protestant missionary, was brutally murdered by Hau Hau militants for working as an agent for Governor George Grey. This heinous act was a direct challenge to the British authorities, and it set the stage for a miscarriage of justice that would see Maori land confiscated en masse. The Volkner incident was a turning point in the New Zealand wars. It gave Governor Grey the excuse he needed to crack down on the Maori people, seizing their land and resources in the name of progress and civilization. But the truth was far more sinister. Grey was a power-hungry opportunist, willing to exploit the situation for his own gain. The Paimarire movement, founded by Tewa Haumene, was a response to this blatant injustice. It was a powerful blend of biblical and Maori elements designed to resist British domination and protect the rights of the Maori people. But it was too little, too late. The damage had already been done and the land of the Maori was being stolen from under their feet. This is Ken Shit, bringing you the unvarnished truth about a dark chapter in New Zealand's history. A chapter marked by betrayal, greed and the systematic oppression of an entire people. May we never forget the sacrifices made by the Maori people in their struggle for justice and equality. Ken Shit, Newsbang. 1444. In a remarkable turn of events hearkening back to the annals of 1444, Skanderbeg has been proclaimed Chief of the League of the Albanian People. This league, an alliance of Albanian chieftains, seeks to defy the Ottoman Empire and establish a unified independent Albania in the medieval age. The implications are as profound as they are intriguing. What does this mean for Europe's political landscape? Only time will tell. 
And from our correspondent Hardiman Pesto, we have more on this story. I'm here with the renowned historian, Professor Sir Lionel Haystacks Martin. We're discussing the League of Leisure, led by Skanderbeg, in the year 1444. The League of Leisure, Pesto? Is that a new football league? No, Martin, it was an alliance of Albanian chieftains against the Ottoman Empire. And who was this Skanderbeg character? A football manager? No, Martin. Skanderbeg was proclaimed chief of the League of the Albanian People and led a rebellion in various territories against the Ottoman Empire. So, Pesto, what you're telling me is that Skanderbeg was the first Albanian to lead a rebellion against the Ottoman Empire. That's right, Martin. And how did this rebellion end, Pesto? Well, it lasted for 25 years, Martin. Skanderbeg managed to keep the Ottoman Empire at bay until his death in 1468. And what happened after his death, Pesto? The League of Legia eventually fell to the Ottoman Empire. So, Pesto, what you're telling me is that Skanderbeg's rebellion was ultimately unsuccessful? Well, it did keep the Ottoman Empire at bay for 25 years, Martin. And how significant was this rebellion, Professor Haystacks? It was very significant, Martin. Skanderbeg is considered a national hero in Albania, and his rebellion is seen as a crucial moment in the country's history. And yet, Pesto, the rebellion ultimately failed. Well, yes, Martin, but it was still a significant moment in Albanian history. And how do we know that, Pesto? Because it's written in the history books, Martin. And who wrote these history books, Pesto? Historians, Martin. And who are these historians, Pesto? People who study history, Martin. And how do we know that these historians are telling the truth, Pesto? Because they're historians, Martin. And who says that these historians are telling the truth, Pesto? Other historians, Martin. And who says that these other historians are telling the truth, Pesto? More historians, Martin. So, Pesto, what you're telling me is that we're relying on the word of a bunch of historians who are all relying on the word of other historians. That's right, Martin. And how do we know that any of these historians are telling the truth, Pesto? Because they're historians, Martin. Pesto, thank you. D. 1949. In a remarkable feat of aeronautical prowess, the B-50 Superfortress Lucky Lady 2 has triumphantly circumnavigated the globe non-stop in a dizzying 94 hours and one minute. The plane, a revised version of the WWI-2 B-29 Superfortress, boasts more powerful engines and a myriad of improvements. The Lucky Lady. Two touchdown in Fort Worth, Texas, the second largest city in the Dallas-Fort Worth-Arlington metropolitan area, bringing this extraordinary journey to a triumphant close. And to the thrilling tale of the Lucky Lady 2's aerial odyssey, we now turn to CBN's Melody Wintergreen for further insights. Fort Worth, Texas, where the roar of engines and the scent of aviation fuel hang heavy in the air. It's here that the B-50 Superfortress Lucky Lady 2 is preparing to make history. A post-World War II marvel, she's a souped-up version of her predecessor, the B-29 Superfortress. But this lady has more than just a new coat of paint. She's got power under her wings and a dream in her heart to circle the globe without stopping. Captain James Gallagher is at the helm, his eyes fixed on the horizon as he readies his crew for takeoff. We're not just flying a plane, he says. We're flying into history. And indeed they are. 94 hours and one minute from now, they'll have circumnavigated the globe without once touching down. In-flight refueling is their secret weapon. Aerial ballets will be performed high above the clouds as fuel is transferred from tanker to plane mid-air. It's a risky maneuver, but necessary for this audacious attempt. 
As Lucky Lady 2 takes to the skies, there's an air of anticipation on the ground. Among those watching is local aviation enthusiast Billy Prop Spinner. This ain't just about breaking records, he says. It's about showing what America can do. And so it begins. The world watches as Lucky Lady 2 embarks on her daring journey. From Fort Worth to history books, she'll fly over oceans and continents through day and night, battling weather and fatigue. But as she touches down back in Fort Worth after her epic journey, it's clear that this lady is no longer just lucky, she's legendary. As Captain Gallagher steps out onto Texan soil once more, he doesn't just bring with him his crew, but also a new chapter in aviation history. So as Lucky Lady 2 cools her engines, it's clear that this is one flight that's taken us all around the world and back again. Melody Wintergreen reporting for Newsbang, Fort Worth, Texas. News bang, a cacophony of truth in a symphony of silence. We're leaping back to 1962, where basketball titan Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain stunned the sporting world with a record-breaking feat. Ryderboff has more on this extraordinary moment in sports history. The year is 1962, and the sporting world has been left gobsmacked, flabbergasted, and utterly bamboozled. Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain, a veritable colossus of the court for the Philadelphia Warriors, etched his name into the annals of basketball history with a Herculean feat that's left statisticians weeping in their abacuses. A century of points single-handedly scored against the New York Knicks. That's right, 100 points in a solitary game. Chamberlain there, bounding about like an over-caffeinated gazelle on stilts. He's got more rebounds than a rubber ball in a tiny tiled room, and he shoots by Jove. He scores. It's raining baskets. Someone fetch an umbrella because Chamberlain is positively precipitating points. And let me tell you something about Wilt. Not only did he conquer the wooden plains of basketball courts across America, but also dabbled in volleyball. Yes, volleying balls was second nature to this towering titan. In other news from 62, which I remember as if it were yesterday because I was there, in spirit, my dear Aunt Mabel once had a dalliance with a chap who claimed to be Chamberlain's third cousin twice removed on his mother's side. She said he had hands like shovels and could palm an entire turkey at Thanksgiving. Now let us leapfrog back to present times where the Golden State Warriors are keeping Chamberlain's legacy alive in San Francisco. They're bouncing balls with such gusto, you'd think they were trying to start their own earthquake. Ice, and, um, and let's not forget those Knickerbockers from Manhattan, still playing hoops as if every match is a chance to rewrite history or at least scrub out that particular page from 1962. Before we close tonight's chapter on sport, here's another tidbit. Back when I tried my hand at basketball during my school days, I was known as Ryder the Ryder Boff due to my uncanny ability to fall off gym equipment while attempting slam dunks. Left quite an impression on both the court and my physiotherapist. That'll do for now. Remember folks, whether it's scoring baskets or knitting socks, a hobby of mine that never really took off, always aim high and watch out for flying seagulls. Nineteen seventy-eight. Here's Calamity Prenderville with a segment on the unparalleled contributions of British innovation in space travel. 
year of our Lord 1978, a Czechoslovakian military pilot named Vladimir Remek did the unthinkable. He boldly went where no non-Soviet or American had gone before. And how did he do it? With the help of British innovation, of course. Um, imagine this. A man, a machine, and a dream. The machine. A Soviet spacecraft named Soyuz 28. <laughs> the man. A Czechoslovakian pilot with a thirst for adventure. The dream? To reach the stars and maybe find some space cheese along the way. But how did this daring astronaut make it to the cosmos? It's simple, really. He used a British-made rocket, powered by the tears of disappointed schoolchildren who didn't get to go to space camp. And the space suit, a British design, of course. It was made from the finest tweed, entering Vladimir stayed warm in the cold vacuum of space. The journey wasn't easy. There were challenges, like space lag and zero-gravity tea-making. But Vladimir persevered, thanks to his trusty British-made space kettle. He even managed to brew a proper cup of tea using a tea bag and a string, just like back home. And when he returned to Earth, he didn't rest on his laurels. No, he became a Czech politician and diplomat, serving as a member of the European Parliament and the Czech ambassador to Russia, all thanks to the power of British innovation. So, let us raise a cup of tea to Vladimir Remek, the first person from outside the Soviet Union or the United States to go into space. And let us remember the British ingenuity that made it all possible. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off from Newsbank. Good night and may your dreams be as big as the universe. Newsbang, where sarcasm and sincerity meet in the newsroom. Here to enlighten us with a delightful romp through history is Sandy O'Shaughnessy, the history professor with a twinkle in his eye and a hidden flask of sherry in his pocket. Nice and easy. Ah, and a very good evening to you all. It's your old mate, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, here to guide you through the delightful maze of history with a dash of humour and a sprinkle of the absurd. I'm like a history professor who's had one too many cups of tea and a secret stash of sherry. Ah. <laughs> now let's set our time machine to 1484. At the College of Arms in London, a heraldic authority was established by the British sovereign. It's a bit like a royal PR agency, but instead of managing scandals and arranging photo ops, they deal with coats of arms, genealogy, flags, and national symbols. I imagine their meetings go something like this. Right, chaps, we need a new coat of arms for the king. Any ideas? How about a lion with a fishtail, holding a sword and a scone? Ah. <laughs> the College of Arms is self-financed, which means they've got to be quite the entrepreneurs. Perhaps they've got a side hustle designing logos for local pubs or creating family crests for the Nouveau Riche. For a mere bag of gold, we'll design a crest that'll make your ancestors proud and your neighbours green with envy. Ah. <laughs> now, the City of London, where the College of Arms resides, is a financial centre and ceremonial county within Greater London. It's a bit like the beating heart of the city, pumping gold and silver through the veins of the realm. I like to picture it as a bustling marketplace, filled with merchants hawking their wares, street performers juggling flaming swords, and the occasional knight in shining armour, lost in the crowd. Ah. <laughs> Speaking of lost, I received a letter from Mrs. O'Leary in Kilkenny. She writes, Dear Sandy, I've lost my pet hedgehog, Sir Pricklesworth. 
He was last seen wearing a tiny coat of arms. Have you seen him? Well, Mrs. O'Leary, if Sir Pricklesworth turns up at the College of Arms, I'll be sure to let you know. Ah. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating how history is filled with these little quirks and oddities. It's like a grand tapestry woven with threads of the mundane and the magnificent, the serious and the silly, and we're all just tiny stitches in this ever-growing masterpiece. Ah. <laughs> so, keep your eyes peeled for lost hedgehogs and hidden histories, and remember, life is a journey, not a destination. And sometimes, the most interesting paths are the ones that take you off the beaten track. Ah. <laughs> Until next time, keep smiling, keep laughing, and remember, see you later, alligator. In a while, crocodile. Sandy O'Shaughnessy, signing off. In a development that would have made even the most jaded of robber barons raise an eyebrow, the year 1901 saw the rise of U.S. Steel, a colossal steel producer backed by the formidable J.P. Morgan. With operations spanning the United States and Central Europe, U.S. Steel peddled its wares to a diverse array of industries, all the while maintaining iron ore and coke production facilities. The man behind the curtain, J.P. Morgan, was a financier of considerable renown, a key player in the industrial consolidations that shaped the early 20th century. And now, for a closer look at the man behind the steel, we turn to our reporter Perkins Stornoway. The show kicks off with a bang. Dogger, good, occasionally poor. Here's a look at the business news for today, the 2024-03-02. U.S. Steel, veering east three or four still operating, after 123 years of serving the American people. It was founded by the ever-so-shrewd J.P. Morgan, who liked to mess about with all sorts of industries. His baby is now over a century old, though. From the same year, in 1901 U.S. Steel, Fastnet, moderate, occasionally poor, made an announcement about the Steel Workers' Organizing Committee. They managed to sign a collective bargaining agreement with U.S. Steel, bringing about a new level of cooperation between employers and employees. It's quite the side, Shannon, light rain later, seeing how they managed to come to an understanding in such a short time. Watney Heckbulb, an organization known for its irresponsible behavior, was ordered to cease trading due to inappropriate conduct. Hebrides, good, occasionally poor. The Watney Heckbulb scandal rocked the business world. Biscay, light, occasionally rough. The organization was forced to change its ways, Viking, slight, becoming moderate. Now let's look at the financial outlook. Forties, veering east, three or four. The pound is performing reasonably well against other major currencies, like the yen, dover, light fog, occasionally moderate. Rockall, east or northeast, three or four. It's quite a spectacle to see it trading against the Deutschmark, Hebrides, occasionally rough, decreasing three or four. The peseta also showed some promise. Trafalgar, west, Backing Southwest 5 or 6. As always, make sure to tune in next time for more business reports. Lundy, rain later.
This has been your financial update for the day. Thames fair, occasionally moderate, and remember, trade responsibly. Business. News bang. Painting the portrait of truth with the brush of reality. And now, it's time for a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Marines in Bahamas beach bash. Nicholas leads Nassau nabbing. There's a photo there of a sandcastle. The Telegraph. Missouri muddle makes Maine free. Congress. Compromises on slavery. There's a map there of the United States with a dotted line. The Guardian. Powa. Polish Home Army in Pavlokoma Massacre, at least 150 Ukrainian civilians slain. There's a photo there of a candlelight vigil. And finally, The Sun, alien abduction in Wiltshire. Local farmer claims crop circles are space graffiti. There's a photo there of a cornfield. That's it for tonight's Newsbang. Join us again tomorrow when we'll be looking at the latest developments in the ongoing saga of the world's largest ball of string. And remember, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.